Welcome to Shatter Glass. Stories of extraordinary women shattering the glass ceiling. I'm Marita Garrett. And I'm Monica Hirschberger. This is Get Political, our mini-series about how to run for office or plug your skills in to help someone else run for office. So today, we are bringing you a bonus episode in our Get Political series. There is a very important topic that we really need to talk about. And thanks to our guest today, we have a full episode coming to you all about the Census 2020. Bhavani Patel and Sangya Gawali are the founders of Beam Data, which works with local governments, nonprofits, social enterprises, and other organizations to address people-centered data challenges. They're super passionate about the census because they want everybody to be counted. Plus, a quick reminder, the primaries are coming. So don't forget that the primary election in the state of Pennsylvania is on May 21st. And if you live elsewhere, take a look at vote.org to find the details in your state. Bhavani, welcome. Thank you for having us. What is the census? Who runs it? What's it for? Mm -hmm. Why do we do it every 10 years? The decennial census is a constitutionally mandated process to count every person that's living in the U.S. It occurs every 10 years, and it's been happening since 1790. The last one was in 2010, which means that the next one's going to be happening in 2020. And so in 2020, the Census Bureau aims to count an increasingly diverse and growing population of around 330 million people. That population data then is used to determine the number of seats each state will receive in the U.S. House of Representatives, a process that's referred to as apportionment. And then the data also determines allocations of billions of dollars in federal funds to local communities. And that's just the very surface. Like, so you you touched on this already Mm -hmm. in just that statement, but what's at stake? Yeah, so participating in the 2020 census can benefit your community in many ways. Federal funds, grants, and other sources of financial support to states, counties, and communities are based on population totals and breakdowns by age, race, sex, and other factors. Your community benefits the most when it counts everyone because you're helping your community receive its fair share of the estimated $880 billion per year in federal funds spent on schools, hospitals, roads, public works, and other critical programs such as Medicaid, CHIP, and low-income home energy assistance. And it really doesn't end there either because data from the 2020 census will also impact community revitalization. Businesses use census data to decide where to build offices, stores, factories, which directly links to job creation. And then when you think about local governments, they also use census data for public safety and emergency preparedness. Thinking about nonprofits and social enterprises and just the amount of density that we hear we have here in Western PA, these organizations rely on census data to support community-based initiatives and advocacy efforts. Just kind of listening to some of that you can see that the 2020 census is tied to many critical elements of our day-to-day lives, which is why it's important to be seen and heard through data. Often, this is not the case for hard-to-count populations. And hard-to-count populations are defined as people that have low response rates to the census. And these include people of color, people with disabilities, immigrants, single-parent households, elderly, people who live in renter-occupied units, low-income families. So there's a lot at stake in 2020. And you can already see just from the patterns of these beginning conversations that communities that have the most to lose in terms of data and representation 
are the Howard DeKalb committees, but these are also the committees that rely most on these programming efforts. And so it may seem like it's kind of early to start talking about the 2020 census, but it's such a big task at hand that we really need to start thinking about how we're going to build partnerships and build coalitions and really lay out a strategic plan that includes a lot of different stakeholders to get out the count. I think especially considering the fact that, you know, we're getting a lot of cut in funding for the census and the fact that it's the first time it's going to be internet driven, um, which means for for an inch, you know, Bobney covered a lot of for enterprises and for a lot of businesses what's at stake. But I think for individuals in general, it's very important to go out there and get yourself um, represented because at the end of the day, the hospitals that you go to, the schools that you go to are really driven by the funding that it receives. And if it doesn't um, represent who you are, then it doesn't service the needs that you have. So you've touched upon some of the reasons that you see people not participating in the census. Are there any other reasons why people don't participate? And what is your rebuttal to those people? What mm-hmm. what what do you say to them to say, no, no, this really is important and here's why? I think there's a lot of, especially for this year, because it is very unique um, this time around, right? I think even mentioning the fact that it is going to be internet driven mm-hmm. is a very key thing. And there's a lot of rural populations, for example, or communities that don't necessarily participate as much in the community that don't participate in general and let alone for something like the census. And the fact that there's a lot of rhetoric going on around data privacy issues, for example, and a lot of questions that we know are going to be in the census, for example, the citizenship question. And in the social sphere, in culturally also, we we don't trust as much um, our information going out into the public. And to dig a bit deeper, I think the citizenship question has caused a lot of fear amongst immigrant communities, and that also has spread to a lot of other communities because it links to, okay, if you're going to question these communities about their citizenship, you know, what are your intentions with this data? There have been a lot of unanswered questions around this. And my rebuttal, I guess, or my comment on that would be, I think that these fears are very much so justified. I think that the administration has deliberately put out these fear-mongering tactics to scare Mm -hmm. people away from being represented in data because they know the the power of what this decennial data does for the next 10 years. It's tied to your political representation. It's tied to your day-to-day survival in terms of federal programming. And ultimately, the people that are going to hurt are the people who are not represented in that data. But when we think about the work that lies ahead, I think it's important for community organizers to really learn about the details of the census, making sure that they know that you don't have to completely fill out the decennial uh, questionnaire. You can leave questions blank mm-hmm. and your census will still count, which means that if in June they do decide to include the citizenship question in the official um, questionnaire, you can leave it blank and mm-hmm. your census will still count. And then thinking about data privacy and the Census Bureau and the, the legal binding that they are under in terms of sharing that data with other agencies, they are legally binded to not do that and they could face a fine, you know, if they do find out that that data is being shared in other places and that that data is being used against them. I think so it's, that could be, that could specifically be about like deportation. So if someone has a fear of deportation because of that citizenship question, you're saying there are legal implications against that. The Census Bureau is tied legally right. th- that they are not allowed to share your data to do things like that. I would guess yeah. that that's not very widely known. It's not very widely known, and I think it's uh, it's a difficult thing to take an official stance on, right? So we have the complete count committee that's being organized by the city and the county. Luckily, we've been able to be a part of some of those conversations from the data subcommittee perspective. And so they've been very open in inviting community members to participate. But from a city and county perspective, they are also, you know, they, they, they're under a unique position where they can't advocate for something like that, which is why I think it's important for nonprofits and community organizations to read up and educate themselves so that they can relay this information and uh, kind of allay the fears of 
of community members who are relying on these organizations to do that work for them. Right. And if truly you are still afraid, just don't answer the question. You don't have to answer the question. Your right. census will still count. I think yeah. a lot of the onus um, really does rely on community leaders for this, mm-hmm. this type of census because a lot of times, a lot of these fears that we have as a community or a race, you have to see it and hear it from people who look like you and they sound like you. And I think regardless of how targeted your messaging is as a government or as a nonprofit or, or a social media campaign or whatever, it just doesn't resonate as much and it doesn't um, become as personal as much because you don't have that lived experience to share. So I think as a way to build trust, right, you really have to activate the grassroots community leaders and empower them with this type of stuff. And that's a strategic way to really engage, I think, with various uh, minority and, and racial groups. That's one of the reasons why Beam Data launched our Census for Cause campaign was to make sure that the messaging that was coming out on the 2020 census and the information, the outreach information that was being shared was in a culturally competent way. And that means making sure that it's also language accessible, that the people that are being filmed for video uh, outreach are faces that are familiar and that they're faces from organizations that people trust and rely on for their day-to-day needs. That is also something that it could be difficult for county and city-level organizations to do, but that's where community grassroots organizations can fill a gap. Like you just said, there's been a lot of national attention from celebrities and more well-known people talking more and more about the census. I've heard from Laverne Cox talking about LGBTQ rights. I've heard from Stacey Abrams hitting it hard in Georgia. So for you, what was it that made you say, this is an issue that I'm passionate about. This is an issue that I think needs to have a focus on in my community. That goes back to kind of why we started Beam Data. So mm-hmm. Beam Data is a startup company that Sangi and I co-founded. It's a data technology company that kind of exists in the intersection of data technology and the social sector. So thinking nonprofits, social enterprises, and local government. How can we as an organization improve the data infrastructure and data capabilities of these organizations so they can serve communities better and move away from assumption-based programming and assumption-based policy? And so whenever we started digging and looking at the data, we inevitably started at the census. And one thing that we realized was that there are massive gaps at the local level when you're trying to look at the census data and understand populations. The, the word Asian, for example, when you try to disaggregate it and learn what does Asian mean, you know, what are the different groups that fall under Asian? The census does a very poor job of making sure that people are represented accurately. And so that made us think that a lot of these organizations rely on census data to do their work, but populations aren't accurately represented. And so, you know, where is that voice? These people are being left unheard. Their needs aren't being recognized. We kept hearing in the news that President Donald Trump, you know, the citizenship question, this, mm-hmm. and then we learned that the 2020 census is significantly underfunded compared to 2010, and then thinking about um, how this is the first census that's going to be conducted online mostly. These are unique challenges that are targeted towards specific groups, minorities, and underrepresented communities that are already facing so many challenges. It's essentially a social justice issue. These communities are facing so many issues, and on top of that, you want to pound them with not having data representation when so many organizations are moving towards data-driven decision-making. It's one of the worst things you could do. And so we had to take it up. Sangya and I are both, you know, of South Asian background. We're South Asian women and we're, you know, interested in data science. So there's a lot of minority context there already. And so how can we use our knowledge base, our networks to make sure that we can take on this issue and that communities that may not get the attention that they deserve for the 2020 census actually do get that attention. I think data in the end of the day is really such a powerful tool when it's put in the right hands. 
the people and the populations that are already so targeted and are left out of discussions or or meeting tables or you know the list goes on and on on top of that they don't even have the ability to interact and engage with data in a way that actually empowers them and gives them choices i mean that that's a serious issue right so a lot of what we do with the census or even what we do with our product and, and building it is really to empower the people on the ground who are working with people to engage with data in a way that's fun because it is right but we don't think about it as that it just remains in this realm of data privacy for example it, it gets very delineated and very generalized when it does not need to be so inside of everything that we're doing we want to make it as fun as possible and as engaging as possible because at the end of the day that's the stuff that goes beyond just you know one effort of the census or a product mm-hmm. or a service or whatever the case may be and to add on to that I, I think that's such an important point that it's not just about the 2020 census and I I actually had the opportunity to meet Stacey Abrams maybe about a month ago. And I talked to her about Verified Action and Fair Count. And she's just an amazing person. Like, she she took her campaign and turned it into a phenomenal movement. And that's exactly what Fair Count is about. But I also think that that's exactly what the 2020 census should be about when we think about engaging minority communities. How many times have these communities been asked to participate in a democratic process, whether it's voting or being counted? If we can get into the habit of knocking on these doors and saying, that please vote. Your vote matters. Mm-hmm. Please get counted. Participate in the census. Your your count matters. That's a special thing. And that's that momentum. If it happens in 2020, how can we keep it going? It shouldn't end just with that. And hopefully it will create momentum for people to not only participate in the census, but to continue voting and right. to continue like seeking opportunities to make their voices be heard. Yeah. Yep. So that in the end, yes, you're being counted in the census, but you're also becoming a more active participant in your yeah. community, maybe, you know, so... I love to see the momentum that you're creating with it's, this. It's getting at really the strategy that we need, I think, to engage with minority populations because a lot of what they're doing is giving individualized people like races, for example, mm-hmm. the tools necessary to equip them and say, go into your communities. Whereas whenever we, we're talking about at-large campaigns or we're sitting at a table saying, you know, how do we tackle this problem? It's so vague in general that it just doesn't work and isn't as effective. So it's, it's really something, a model to look upon, I think, what they're trying to do by actually creating committees very focused on, let's say, the Latin American population sure. or, or the Afghan population mm-hmm. and just starting at that level. It's it's a very empowering thing and a very specific Absolutely. model that I don't think has been used it's as really, creatively so it's far. It's really exciting because I think this is what our conversations at Shattered Glass have been about for grassroots strategies for political campaigns. It's refreshing and exciting to see other kinds of campaigns that aren't necessarily political that are looking to include every single person that are are so grassroots and just kind of proving that that is an effective way to reach new groups of people yeah. or it has to be it has to be yeah Are you working towards making data fun and understandable to the general public? 
So I think whenever we talk about the general public, it's important to delineate all the different levels in which that exists, right? Right. Because、so、that that really isn't an audience that exists. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, and we often talk at that level, but、right. I think when you break it down, you you get to the people who are actually living and consuming, and and you know, just you and I as people who live in society, and then there are people at the systems level who actually run businesses and who run nonprofits, etc. So when you look at the people on the ground, Around you know people day to day, it's important to give them choices. You know you certainly have to talk about data privacy first and foremost, and make sure that there's trust that you can develop with the system that they're interacting with, whichever form that comes in.、Um, for Beam Data, it's a product that we're building, for example, right? So if they log in, it should be a very engaging platform. So user experience for us is a is a very critical thing that we work in、um, every day. When you look at the systems level and the businesses or the Nonprofits that could engage with that data that is pulled from people. Privacy again becomes an issue that needs to be considered and is not used in a very manipulative way, but also gives them the power. I think at a systems level to build on and and is informative enough that they can make decisions out of. And it's not just at assumptions level, for example, right? So the data that's gathered has to be nuanced. It has to capture the details, the individual details of people who are actually responding to them. So it can't be general as much.、Mm-hmm. Um, and I think once those type of nuanced data sets start being gathered, then it empowers the decision makers to actually go forward and implement similar solutions. They have almost like a know-how and a toolkit to go forward with. And then people that are giving the data should also feel that you know that was a fun experience, right?、Mm-hmm. I didn't feel like my private information was extracted, for example. And how are they going to be using this information? And and what's next, kind of thing. So those questions should be addressed.、Uh, Right from the get go. I think from a from a product standpoint, from a technical perspective, that's so important, especially in the age of Facebook and Twitter, where people are just building systems, and、mm-hmm. we have we never thought about these questions. From a startup perspective, this is the core of what we think about. But in terms of like the the census for a cause campaign and just like putting out data bits and getting people to think more in terms of data, go into the community, go to different events, talk to people, learn about the issues that they care about. You know, are they organizing around something、uh, like Medicare for all? Are they organizing around Higher wages. What kind of questions are they asking, and what kind of data can you put out there that matches those questions? Understanding the community that you're trying to reach is such a critical part of digging into census data, for example, or other database sources, and making sure that it's relatable. It's it's the kind of things that people want to hear. It'll trigger something in them to actually start digging and looking at how they can wrap that very quantitative number with qualitative stories, for example. So it's kind of like a trigger in some ways. Like, look at this number. Oh wow, I didn't think about that. I didn't know. That and it forces them to take another leap.、Yeah. And so when we think about the census campaign and just some of how of how we run our social media, that's what we do. We like to look at numbers and play around and see what's out there and what what kind of triggers us. And I can give you a good example of this. So thinking about Allegheny County, there are 130 municipalities in Allegheny County and 90 neighborhoods in the city of Pittsburgh. And looking at 2016 American Community Survey data, East Pittsburgh, Rankin, Wilmerding, Bellevue, Turtle Creek, and Wilkinsburg. Face unique challenges in the 2020 census because they have high numbers of renter-occupied units, and so that's something that you can take to a community organizer, someone, and say, "Hey, this is a, this is this is a challenge. Like, I can take this information, this top six list." And use that to build my campaign around that,、mm-hmm. and say I have a community here that's renter occupied. Maybe I should be reaching out to the leasing office or the libraries, putting out different literature that targets these communities and says, "Hey, 
you, you're at risk of being undercounted in 2020. Have you thought about these? Yeah. Provoking some questions and conversations. And it's little steps like that, I think, that can make data more accessible and yeah. that builds less fear around data. Definitely. It's, it's, it's like, you know, putting your efforts where it actually needs to go yeah. rather than just fueling so much money and resources behind things that we know already work. Like we know a portion of a population already come and show up, right? That's just because they are engaged. That is just their normal lives. So you don't need to keep on going to them, you can look at numbers like Bobney just pointed out and say, there's a huge gap, right? What are we doing about it? And I think generally, you know, what this does is it normalizes data. Even the question of what is data, we think of numbers and we think of spreadsheets and, and these massive like data sets, and it can be very frightening. But I think being able to consume bits throughout the day and say that even stories, right, a conversation that we have is a data point in a way, because it informs me of information that I didn't have previously and I can use this, I can take it back and I can make decisions off of it or maybe I can dig deeper within it. So just breaking down some of those wide-held assumptions is at the heart of making it accessible and fun and engaging because it doesn't have to be something that you have to sit behind a desk and start crunching away at. And also another caveat, like actually knowing how to engage with these numbers. You know, people make mm -hmm. the claim they know their data and that they're data scientists, <laughs> but how many times do people actually know what they're looking at and what they're searching the context. for. context. Yeah, and right. what kind yeah. of claims you're making. Like, I can't tell you the amount of times that we recheck and recheck the things that we put out because we want to make sure that we're accurately representing what we're saying we are. Right. And how many times does that happen? Like, mm -hmm. we maybe even just doing more of that, we can become a little bit less scared of data. As you are learning more about the data that you're digging into in the census and you're seeing gaps and holes, like one that you already mentioned was the way that the word Asian is represented, it doesn't totally make sense. What are some of the questions and data pieces that you think are missing from the census that you'd like to see? When it comes to the census questions, I think it's really important to be as granular as you can. And I know that's not feasible right off the bat, sure. but I think we have to think at that level just because the neighborhoods that we live in now and the communities that we live in now and the people that inhabit them, if you look at it 10, 10 years ago or, or a decade before that, it's not the same type of people, right? Your neighbors look different today. And they look different, but they also have very different realities, lived realities, for example. So it's important to understand that in, a, in an engagement perspective at the very ground level. But, you know, once you get to the business or the government or social like level in general, it starts creating so many problems and gaps in understanding how to design services, for example, or design programs that actually suit the people on the ground, because it's certainly not how we are used to doing it. And when I hear that question, I really think about, um, data granularity and that's when even starting beam that's where we we began because we saw a lot of gaps at that level i think in terms of questioning i mean obviously the line of questioning when we think about citizenship questions that's not something that we would want to see that deters a lot of people but there are some good things that have happened with the census in 2020 so they are including a question on um, same-sex marriage and opposite sex marriage that we'll be able to record same-sex marriage in the united states and look at that population data which will hopefully inform a lot of different policy making and a lot of different programming efforts that are done through different organizations. But I think that although we do have that gain, I think it's important to keep pushing, right? Because when we look at the LGBT community and their different needs, we're not taking into consideration, for example, the bisexual people, transgendered people, and unpartnered gay and lesbian people. And so that represents a large part of the LGBT community. Right. And so th those individuals go essentially voiceless or unheard when, we come, when it looks from a data perspective. And they're already fighting such a strong fight. Imagine if they actually had the data 
to back up what they're fighting for. Mm -hmm. And it's unfortunate that they have to rely on disparate data sources or other federal databases to, to make that case. But something like that should be included in the census because it's a day-to-day -day thing. They they are part of the community, like what Sangye was saying. Our communities are changing. Our lifestyles are changing. Like We need to represent that in something as basic as the decennial census. If healthcare is responding to the census Absolutely. with the healthcare that they're offering, how will the healthcare system yeah. know to follow through with that kind of care? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's one of the things that you, you, you would think about the LGBT community and how they're advocating. I mean, that's that's fundamentally why they would want that representation yeah. in the census so they can actually use that to make compelling arguments because these are things that their communities are going through, but it's unfortunate because they oftentimes lack the data, like many mm -hmm. other minority and underrepresented communities lack that data. One other thing that is a positive thing moving into 2020 census is that for the Asian American Pacific Islander community, there will be an opportunity in the 2020 census to choose other Asian or other Pacific Islander and then write in a specific racial identity. And I think that this goes back to the point about disaggregated data at the local level, knowing that Asian is something deeper, that there's a lot of diversity and cultural difference that's embedded in, the, in that term, and unpacking that and thinking about how that can influence policy and different programming. I just don't think we have the luxury to generalize as much as we have been and we've been getting away with anymore, mm -hmm. just because we need systems, governance, healthcare that is responsive to the changing realities that we're facing every day as people, right? So we need that type of momentum and movement or an urgency almost at, yeah. at, at our systems to you know, take in and consume this information to actually provide whatever their output or provision is. So I think there's so many things that you can achieve when you actually start looking at data, not just from a very black and white lens, but one that has color, because that's the only way I think we can begin understanding a lot of the conflicts that we're running into today. I mean, it's not something that's happening out of the blue. It's been brewing over time, right? And I think data is just a part of that type of uh, culture shift. This series has has been all about how to get involved with advocacy and political action without necessarily running for office. Bhavani, I know that you're an advocate, maybe both of you, for a representation of South Asian and Indian communities. Could you elaborate more on what actions you've taken? Like, I know you've met with the governor. Like, what kinds of things have you done outside of the work you do from day to day? Yes, I mean, for me, this is like something that I'm extremely passionate about, just living in Western PA and looking at people that are running for office and how binary some of the conversations can be in, from a racial perspective. Uh, where is the Asian voice? Where is the Southeast Asian voice, South Asian voice? And how do we get some of these people to come out and actually run for office or run a campaign or volunteer on a campaign even? Absolutely. And that's been a massive challenge because I think that, again, it's, it comes down to are we asking these people to do that? Do they realize that there's a need and that they're wanted, that they're invited to be part of these processes? And so for me, um, I decided to get involved with my Democratic committee in Edgewood, the Edgewood Democratic Committee, and I ran for a committee seat and I eventually was elected and I serve as the vice chair now, which has been great for me to awesome. get. Yeah, it, it's been amazing, like working on different campaigns, you get invited to certain parties. Oftentimes I am the only South Asian person in a room, you know, at the Allegheny County Democratic Endorsement Day. I, I don't know, like maybe I was the only Asian to walk through that door that day and place my vote. That, and that's concerning. It shouldn't be like that. So that's one thing that I've done. And then I've also just host potlucks and house parties. And Sangya is a massive supporter and always being there and kind of convincing me to do it, even though, you know, the turnout may be low or that the conversations may kind of fall flat. But it's important to keep at it because totally. if those things aren't happening, then there's no kind of precedent for it to continue in the future. Exactly. But I do want to say that there are a lot of AAPIs in our region that are doing phenomenal work that are tangentially political 
political. They may not be running for office, but, you know, for example, we had the Femisphere Code Switch that was organized by a South Asian woman from Women and Girls Foundation. She was working with single moms. She organized this massive event to get coders to work with moms to develop apps so that they could improve their day-to-day habits and their livelihood outcomes. That's amazing, and that's political in some way. People are organizing. They're doing amazing work, and I think it's just a matter of recognition and getting people on panels and stages so that we can see that the AAPI community exists and that they care and that they're ready to be allies. Yeah, I think it's very important to be an advocate. You don't have to be doing, like, running for offices like you mentioned, right? It doesn't have to be so grand right away. I think it's very important to remember the little ways in which you can contribute. And I think if it can start there, then it can start there. And oftentimes, you know, looking at the AAPI community where we don't have as much involvement in the area as we need to, that by itself is enough. It's very important to realize that and and empower people to just take the first step. So I also work at BNYML, joining employee resource groups like Impact, for example, which is very common in the companies here, or joining board seats, for example, to have your representation there so that you can influence decisions that get made in the area. I mean, they might not sound very political to begin with, but it does matter. It comes in many forms, and it's important to recognize that. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This has been super informative, and I am positive that our listeners will learn a lot from it. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. And if anyone's interested in getting involved with Census for a Cause, please reach out. And we're happy to continue that conversation. Yeah, and even even if you want to get involved in the census, reaching out to the school or the community leaders that you have in the area is a great way to get your foot out there, especially if you represent a specific racial group or a very underrepresented group in general. I think just try something. And we're obviously here if anyone wants to talk and get in touch. Half the battle is showing up. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. It is. It really is. Yeah. Well, thank you guys so much. Thank you. I'm just like speechless. I know. Right now, who knew census was that deep? I know. There was so much more to it that I didn't know. I was really, really struck by the fact that you don't have to answer a question. Yes. Like, what yes. a simple thing right. that I had no idea that, of course, that's allowed. Mm-hmm. Why would your address and age not count if you didn't answer one question? Right. If the citizen question totally freaks you out, don't answer it. Don't answer it. So I definitely think that helped me even change my mindset about the census. But especially data should be fun and inclusive and everyone should be a part of it and and accessible instead of this kind of scary thing when we hear data immediately I think my shoulders just went back a little like (laughs) but that's real I mean that's what we should be so shout out really to beam data for changing that narrative for using census 2020 as kind of that first tool on how we reimagine data and even what data is right because if people don't understand data then it, it shouldn't have power over our lives The more that we can understand it, the more approachable it is. And the more that people participating in creating that data, like Mm -hmm. it's just going to reflect what culture actually looks like, which is so necessary for all of our systems to work. I felt we should all participate in the census 2020 just because I felt, quote unquote, that was our right. But we honestly owe it to ourselves to not only reinvest into our communities, but transportation, revitalization, all of these things.
things that truly do affect our daily quality of life. Yeah. Healthcare. That was that the one babies. struck me a lot. The babies. The babies. Chip. <laughs> if you're not convinced already that you should participate in the census, I mean, this is this is it. This is the it's end right all now. be all. Right now. <laughs> 2020. And, all. you know, hopefully this series has inspired you to be involved in some kind of political campaign. And if politics isn't something that you're eager to become a part of, maybe the census is. So there's lots of opportunities to get involved. You can go to census.gov and there's lots of things there. But I'm sure, I'm sure that there are lots and lots of local organizations in your community that are trying to get these grassroots movements happening so that you can get more people counted on your local census. And I know, Marita, you're going to do that for Wilkinsburg. We're going to do that for Wilkinsburg. We're going to host a community conversation. But honestly, every community should be doing a community conversation about this. Since it's 2020, it's right around the corner. So we need to be having conversations about this right now. So make this your new dinner table conversation, your new brunch conversation, happy hour conversation, group me conversation, anything. Facebook. Let's talk about it. Let's get it going. And let's make sure that we're doing our part to make sure everyone is counted. Love to hear what you think about Shattered Glass, and we're always looking for suggestions for future guests. You can contact us via our website, shatteredglasspodcast.com, or on any social media platforms. Our Twitter handle is at shatteredglasspod. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on whatever platform you use. This episode was produced by Jessica Kaminsky with original music by Anthony LaMarca. Onward and upwards, ladies. Straight through the glass. <laughs>